Well, um, we are in Daniel chapter 5 this week. Daniel chapter 8, I covered in the newsletter this past week. If you haven't seen it, you can visit the website and just see the newsletter. We have all the newsletters archived there. But we're going backwards. So the book of Daniel is not in chronological order. It is in grouped with uh, historical accounts and then prophetic accounts. And so Daniel chapter 7 and 8 are two different visions that, that Daniel saw during the reign of Belshazzar. And so now we're going back to Daniel chapter 5, which is the tail end, the very last moments of the reign of Belshazzar. At this point, Daniel has been in captivity since a teenager for over 70 years. Daniel is somewhere in his 80s at this point, not a young man. And I just, for what it's worth, those of you that are older in this congregation, it's important to see that God using Daniel in his latter years. It's important to remember that God called Moses to do the work that he did when he was 80 years old. And so let us not give up in serving the Lord in older age. But we've gone through this little bit of history with Nebuchadnezzar and him reigning for about 45 years. There's a king in between, Evel Murdoch. And then you have Nabonidus and Belshazzar, father and son, biologically co-reigning together from 550 to 539 B.C. in Babylon. It is important that the book of Daniel can be confusing a little bit historically, and that causes some people to stumble. But let me remind you that the book of Daniel was not written for the purpose of laying out for us a chronological account of the history of Babylon. The book of Daniel was written to record the work of the Lord in the life of Daniel and how it is that that plays out in the life of the nation of Israel and beyond into us understanding who Christ is and these prophetic words about Christ. So I'm trying to give you the framework of history, and nothing about this contradicts what we find in history, but the purpose of Daniel is not to teach us history. But we also know an interesting tidbit from ancient Babylonian history that is important to this book, uh, to this chapter this morning. We know from the ancient Babylonian court chronicles that in 539 BC, which is the fall of Belshazzar's reign, that the Medo-Persian army had first defeated uh, Nabonidus, I've got to get this right, Nabodonus, I've been trying to pronounce it, and I messed it up again, Nabodonus, about 50 miles from Babylon, just days prior to that army then going on and defeating Babylon. And so understanding that account is fascinating, because this account happens in Babylon with a great feast right before it falls. And so according to the historical record, only 50 miles away, the Medo-Persians were breathing down their neck and getting ready to invade them. And yet he, in his absolute hubris, calls together a banquet of his nobles to throw a party on the eve of looking like they're going to be overtaken by their enemies. And so in light of these historical things, we're going to read all of Daniel chapter 5. I understand this is a long, long chapter. And Perhaps you're not used to being in church where they read a lot of scripture, but I believe the most important thing that's going to happen here this morning is me reading the Bible to you. And then what I have to say is secondary, but if it's hard for you to read along, just, just listen as I read this to you. But this story, you need to hear the whole story because the story matters. This, this account is what we will be talking about this morning. So please, let's stand to honor the Lord, and I will read his word for us this morning. Daniel chapter 5, verses 1 through 30. King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. 
And Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. And they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them. And they drank wine and they praised the gods of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. And immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall in the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote, and the king's color changed, and his thoughts alarmed him, and his limbs gave way, and his knees knocked together. And the king loudly called to bring in the enchanters and the Chaldeans and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers. Because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called. He will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king, and the king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you, that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation, but they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom." Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne. And his glory was taken from him and he was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast and his dwelling with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, that you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house you have brought in before you, and you and your lords and your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them, and you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath 
in whose are all your ways you have not honored. Then from his presence the hand was sent, and this writing was inscribed, and this is the writing that was inscribed, Mine, Mine, Tikal Parsim. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mine, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tikal, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A chain of gold was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom about 62 years old. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. A powerful story. It begins with a a proud king throwing a feast in the face of destruction and bringing in a thousand nobles and bringing out all the wine and having a big party. And it's important and interesting and worth noting. There's so many basic lessons that come out of this passage. You know, this is a long time ago somebody said, it's not the things in the Bible that I don't understand that bother me so much. It's the things that I do understand that bother me so much. And there's a lot of very clear lessons for us that come out of this passage this morning. And the first is that he starts going downhill after he's had too much wine. How many people have gotten into terrible trouble and gone down a road of evil after having too much wine? And they lose control of themselves and the sinfulness of their heart breaks out and their pride comes into the open and then they're stuck in a place of sinfulness. And so in the midst of this, he goes to the treasury and says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to shame all of these exiles and we're going to pull out the, the golden things that we found in their temple and we're going to mock them openly. It seems like they haven't been pulled out before. They've been in the treasury for a long time, but he purposefully and publicly intends to insult and blaspheme God and that's what he does. So he goes and pulls these things out. And he begins to worship their animistic gods of stone and rock and, as Daniel says, things that cannot see, cannot hear, cannot know, and they mock them with the instruments that have been made, instructed by God, and made according to his command for worship in the temple. This is blasphemy. What is blasphemy? That's a word that we don't hear much. Some of you younger folks may not even understand what that term means, but it's very important. Blasphemy is the act of speaking against or defiling something that is sacred. Speaking against or defiling something that's sacred. And the reason why that definition is so lost in this day is that very few things, if anything, is considered sacred by anyone anymore. And so when nothing is sacred, then there can be no blasphemy because people just do whatever they want, however they want, whenever they want. But we understand from the scriptures that there are things that are supposed to be set apart for worship, things that are to be set apart for the purposes of God that are to be kept set apart and that we are not to speak against them and we are not to blaspheme them. I would like to read from 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3 talks about the end of all things. The end of the days, the last days, and it it talks about the, the mocking blasphemous spirit of what will happen. But understand, writes Paul, 
Then in the last days, there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. It's a long, interesting list of a, of a time that is going to come where things just continue to get worse and worse and worse. And the hearts of people are turned against the things of the Lord, and they no longer hold up the things of God as sacred, but their whole lives are defined by blasphemy. We could have a long list here, but I want to point out at least a few things that I want us as a church to grasp that need to be held as sacred and that we be careful not to blaspheme those things. I've mentioned this one before, but I'm going to mention it again. Using the name of Jesus as a curse is blasphemy. The name of Jesus is a sacred name. It's called the name above every other name. And when we speak the name of Jesus, it should be something that is spoken with honor and with reverence and that we are addressing our Lord and not something that is used as a curse. And we need to be careful with this because our words can run away. James says that the the taming of the tongue is near impossible. And so we need to go to God and ask him, help us. Help us to tame the words. And if this is something that is a struggle for you, ask God to help you and he will help you to be able to bring this into control that you might not be a blasphemer in your life. Our culture is defined in many, many places. We've all seen it. Churches that will fly a giant flag in the front of the church declaring that what God has said is evil is in fact good and trying to defame the things of God. This is an act of blasphemy. When we go about saying God has said it's evil but I'm telling you that it's good and we're going to define ourselves by what we have redefined of, of God is blasphemy. Lying lips are blasphemy. When a person claims to be a Christian and claims to be a person of the truth and goes about intentionally lying, the scriptures over and over talk about God hating lying lips. And it's something that takes a life that ought to be lived in a certain way and it goes in a different direction and it brings shame on the name of Jesus Christ. And that's where it becomes something that is against what we ought to be doing and becomes blasphemous to the name of Christ Jesus because we claim his name, a God of truth, but we are not a people of truth. And so let us just be careful in our lives as we live, that we live as a people that keep sacred things sacred, that we honor the things of the Lord and that we are not a people that provoke God. That word is used specifically throughout the Old Testament, talking about the people of Israel that knew what God would have them to do, and they don't do it. Instead, they're provoking, they're needling God. And we know what it means to provoke somebody. Everyone that has children, and you, if you've been a child, you know what it means to provoke your parents. You know where your parents' button is, and when you go in and you keep pushing that button, you're provoking your parents. And we can provoke God, and that's not a wise thing to do. When you know what you ought to do and you don't do it, you're provoking God. And so Belshazzar intentionally provokes God publicly with a blasphemous act. And as he does this, something just completely unusual happens. The Lord sends this hand. This hand appears and starts to write on the plaster of the wall. And there's an interesting little tidbit here. It says, opposite the lampstand. 
which we're assuming this is the lampstand that was brought, the temple lampstand, and there's a shadow cast across this hand in the darkness, and this thing's writing on the wall, and it absolutely terrifies him. It's drama used by the Lord. God is trying to call this proud, foolish, blaspheming, drunk king to repentance. He's trying to stop him in his tracks by fear. Perhaps there's some of you here today where God has done something dramatic in your life. And as I'm saying this, you know what it is, that God did something to try to stop you in your tracks, to bring you back from the edge of your own self-destruction, to get your attention. And this is what he is doing with Belshazzar. And it's from this that this uh, saying that we've all heard, the handwriting on the wall. What does that mean? The handwriting on the wall is when someone is giving you a warning. It's a shot over the bow. Wake up. Listen, because your destruction is getting ready to come to pass. And this is what is happening with Belshazzar. He's terrified. And he, he breaks out of his kingly role and in panic starts shouting for answers. Somebody tell me what this means. Like, bring all the wise men in. I want to know what this thing is saying right now. And he promises reward for those that can tell him what is there. But no one can give him any answers. You know, and as I'm reading this and thinking, you know, all, all these wise men, all these people around trying to give him answers in a panic and nobody can give him any answers, it just reminds me so much of the commentary of our day and age. Now, you can go and watch a table of five, six, seven people that know nothing about God and they can talk and talk and talk for an hour and come up with not one meaningful thing to say because they don't understand the true nature of the world. They don't understand what's going on. They've rejected the things of God, rejected the things of Christ, and it's like pool ignorance just going round and round and round and no one seems to know what is happening or be able to give any answer as to what is really going on. But in verses 10 through 12, it's reminded that there is this man named Daniel. And so the queen is the one who brings up his name. He's not at this feast apparently. He's where he can be called in, but he's not a part of what is going on. He has apparently been intentionally dishonored by not being invited to what is happening. And when he's brought in, the dishonor, the intentional dishonor keeps going from the king, where he says in verse 13, you are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought in from Judah, just reminding him, you're not one of us. You're from the outside. He's been there for 70 years, but he's still an outsider, still in exile, still not one of them. But he's heard that in him there is this spirit of the gods. Now, we've talked about this. He's been referred to like this once before. And I want to remind you of what this definition, what this description is all about. This is a description given to him by pagan people that don't understand who God is. They understand that they have a, a group of gods, and they see something of God in this man, but they don't know how to describe it. So they describe it in the way that they would normally describe it, that there's the spirit of one of the gods in him. They don't understand that there's only one true and living God. And so their description of him is inaccurate, but this is the way that they describe him. But they describe him, it's interesting, even though they don't understand what's going on there, they do see what type of a person he is. And they say that there is in him light and wisdom and understanding, all of those things which are characteristics of God, all the things that you would describe a Christian person, someone that is seeking after and following God, you would expect for them to be characterized in these ways. 
And before we go on to see Daniel's explanation and the way he encounters this king, I just want to stop and make note of the steadiness of Daniel. Okay, we started out with Daniel as a teenager, and now we're here with Daniel in his 80s. And there is a steadiness to his character. He is described in the same way in his 80s as he was as a teenager. And there's something to be said for that that we can't just pass over. We all have been around people that the older they got, they didn't get sweeter. And they didn't get better. And they didn't become more like Christ. It's something just tailed off. And the latter years were not as good as the early years. And I can tell you that Daniel is one of these great Bible characters that stands for me as a challenge and an encouragement that in our older years, we can remain godly. And I want to encourage you towards steady godliness. This world is all about flash and all about how much you can, how big of a splash you can make at any given time. And how, it's really what we're getting ready to see here with Belshazzar. It's the gold chain culture. I'm going to put a big gold chain on you and you're going to be a flashy person that everybody's going to notice and see. This is the opposite of godliness. What we are striving for as godly people is a continuous, steady growth of Christian character that lasts and lasts and lasts until we finally one day enter into the presence of Jesus our Lord. And so I want to challenge you to be a steady Christian, a Christian that endures over the days and over the months and over the years and over the decades, and that as one generation enters into another generation and into another generation, that you, as you grow older, are a stalwart Christian that younger generations can look up to and can see the things of God in your life, and it is important to the generations of the church. So this steady Daniel This one who walks with God because he wants to know God, not because he wants to be rewarded by men or have any place in this kingdom. He says powerfully in verse 17, keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to another. I'm not interested in what you have to give me. I don't want what you're offering. And this has to touch our hearts. Do the things of this world still draw you? Do the things of this world still affect your affections? Do you still really and truly, like if you asked yourself honestly, no, I still really want the things of this world. If somebody offered me a great place in some wicked government and a, and a big gold chain to do something that they wanted me to do, would I really want that or am I free from those things? At this point, Daniel is completely free of these things. It's, it's hilarious because this is so many thousands of years ago And what does he offer him? He's basically offering them the same thing that people still show off with today, a big gold chain. Like I just heard a radio uh, advertisement just the other day. Come in, try out our gold chains. Like it's the same thing. Like nothing is new under the sun. And yet Daniel doesn't want it. He's not interested. His seeking is after the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Daniel cares about what God is doing in the world. And he wants to be a part of what God is doing in the world. When he rebukes this king in verse 17 with incredible boldness, part of why I went to the visions first and then back to this is I think it gives you a context of why he is so bold, why he is so disinterested in the things of this kingdom, because God has given him over the decades of his life these incredible open windows into seeing something of the throne room of heaven, seeing something of the future of the kingdom of God, seeing something of the coming of the Messiah, and the things of this world have grown strangely dim to him, and he is just not interested in them anymore. 
He, underst- he has spoken with the angel Gabriel. If you uh, read what I wrote this past week in chapter 8, he has this interaction with Gabriel. And I tell you that the, the longer and the more time that you spend abiding with Christ, the more that you devote yourself to God's word and the more that you're in prayer and the more that you come nearer and nearer to Christ Jesus, the more that the things of this world become disinteresting to you. You're just not interested in what's going on there. They don't have the same allure, the same draw, or the same uh, interest in your heart as they did before. And this is what we see with Daniel. He is not impressed with Belshazzar, and so he rebukes him as a messenger of God, bringing this sign and interpreting this sign and making clearly known to this king what God is trying to say to him. And he begins with a history lesson, the history lesson of his father. Now, as I reviewed the history a little bit here, he is his father in an ancestral sense, not in a biological sense. So he called him there his father. So Nebuchadnezzar was uh, two generations before him, but he brings to bear the powerful lesson that God taught him. In verse, uh, let's see, eight, uh, he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom forever. So let's see here. We're in Daniel 17. Let your gifts be your own. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father kingship, greatness, and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. And when his heart was lifted up, And his spirit was hardened, so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him, and he was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, until he knew that the Most High God rules over the kingdom of mankind. He should have known that his grandfather was in a high place. And then he was brought low. It was something that was known, but it was something that he rejected. He came under and recognized the authority of God. And when he finally did recognize the authority of God was when his kingdom changed. And the whole purpose of this being included by Daniel is this powerful, basic life lesson that we ought to learn from the mistakes and sins of others, especially our parents and grandparents. Let me say that again. He should have understood and learned from the sin and then the repentance of Nebuchadnezzar. But he didn't. And so Daniel's rebuking him for this. And I think that almost every one of us here have some aspect of this in our heritage, something that we know from our heritage that we could and should learn, but perhaps we have not. It is good and right to learn from your mistakes and from your sins. But I tell you, it's better to learn from the consequences of those things in other people's lives so that you don't have to experience them yourself. And so this is a big part of why the Bible includes so many different characters. The Bible is not just a series of lessons as to what we ought to be doing, but it is a a series of stories that tell us things about people's lives in part so that we can learn from their lives and that we can avoid the failings and sins of their lives. We can look at Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament about lying and say we should not lie to God's spirit. There will be dire consequences. We look at the betrayal of Judas 
and say we should be faithful people, not betrayers. We look at the adultery of David and we're challenged to be faithful. We look at the greed of Gehazi and we're challenged to be content people and to learn from what we see in these characters' lives and as we learn from them, go and live in a different way. And so I would ask you, how many times have you seen children and grandchildren repeat and be destroyed by the same sins of their father and mother? I've seen this so many times, the cyclical repeating things of families where the children and the grandchildren do not learn from the sins and the failings of their fathers or their mothers. And even though they saw the example and they ought to know better, they don't. And they go down the exact same road. And so this is what is happening, happening with Belshazzar. But what I want to put before you this morning is that this cycle of sin that is passed down through families can only be broken by one thing and one thing only, and that is the grace of Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is going to come to us in the next part here as he delivers God's message to him. But if you see in your family a great cycle of sin, as this family saw a great cycle of pride and violence, we must know that only by God's grace will this cycle be broken. And so Daniel rebukes him. You, his son, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, and you worship these gods that cannot see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored. He should have known, but he did not. So in verse 23, he is still lifting up these gods. Dear friend, how many of you know better than to live the way that you do? I know that there are many of us here. There are many of you here now this morning that may be living in some way that you know that you should not be living in the way that you are living. Perhaps you have seen in your parents or your grandparents anger and drunkenness, sexual sin, pride, profanity, greed, worldliness, addiction, materialism, whatever it may be, you have seen this modeled by family members and you're tempted to walk in the same way and that you are not hearing the warning of the Lord as we are seeing it put out before us. You're not recognizing in your life what is happening and what God is doing. And so the interpretation of the handwriting on the wall is crucially important to understand how it is that we ought to live. And so what he has written there is, mine, mine, tickle, parson. The first, Daniel says, is that your days are numbered, that you are nearing an end. Second, that you have been weighed, which means you have been found wanting or deficient, that you are not good enough, that you do not measure up. And Perez, your kingdom will be removed. What you have will be taken away. And so what we have before us is a warning to Belshazzar, but it's a universal warning, I believe, to all of us. The first part, mine, all your days are numbered, that we do not know the days of our death. Your days are numbered. Just this past week, I did a funeral uh, of a man who's attended this church for many months and died unexpectedly of a heart attack. He did not expect the day of his death. You and I do not know the day of our death. We do not know, but the Lord does, and our days are numbered. We often live in a way that we put all these things off. Part of the retirement culture of America is always living for a future that we expect but is not guaranteed. And so I press you to understand that the, the days of every person are numbered. But then we go to Tikal, you have been found deficient or wanting before God. It's easy to point a finger at Belshazzar and say, yeah, obviously this guy is deficient before the Lord. Obviously he's an ungodly person. 
But this points to all of us. Because when we are weighed or accounted for before the Lord, before his standard of perfection, every single one of us are found deficient. Every single one of us are not good enough. Every single one of us do not measure up. And when we look at the standard, we have to understand what the standard is. The standard is the perfection of God. And perfection is something we're talking about. Perfection means you can't add anything to it to make it better. And you can't, there's nothing sinful there that needs to be taken away. That's perfection. And if, if I am measured to a standard of perfection, or if you are measured to a standard of perfection, we immediately see a thousand things that needs to be added to us that we might be more of who we ought to be. And we see sinful things about our lives that we know ought to be taken away. And when we compare ourselves to a standard of perfection, we always fall short of this. And so Perez, your day is coming. For Belshazzar, his kingdom was soon to be taken away. But for all of us, the Bible talks about the judgment of God that will one day come. There will not be any person on earth that will escape standing before the judgment of a holy God. And when we talk about this and we think about this, we say, how is this good news? This sounds like terrible news. Why are you telling me this? Are you trying to depress me this morning? And the answer is no. But the good news of the salvation of Jesus Christ only becomes a beautiful thing in light of the terrible news of our condemnation before God. Because when we see and recognize the place that Belshazzar was is in fact the same place that we are and that we are doomed if we are not forgiven by God, if there's not some way of mercy opened up to us, then this is not good news. But I want you to see and understand that all the way from the Old Testament to the time of Christ and to us now, God has not changed in being merciful and being willing to forgive and to give new life to all those that will turn to him. I'm going to read a couple of passages from the Old Testament for us. At the beginning of the Old Testament in my Bible, I have a, all, a long series of passages that are listed throughout the Old Testament that deal with the mercy of God in the Old Testament. And I think it's important to read some of these. Numbers 14, 18 says this, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity. The forgiveness of God always comes to those that ask for forgiveness. If Belshazzar had asked for forgiveness, he would have received forgiveness. When we go to the prophet Jonah and him uh, speaking to Nineveh, it, the hardness of Jonah's heart was the one who was actually calling for repentance. When they do repent, he doesn't want to hear about it. It bothers him. He says in Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. That's, how, that's the God that we serve, a God who is merciful Slow to anger, meaning always giving a person a chance to repent and turn away from their sins. That's what's happening with Belshazzar. He's giving him a wake-up call. He's, he's, he's getting right in his face to help him understand the sinfulness of his life and giving him the opportunity to turn away from those sins. And those who do turn away from their sins and believe in the Lord God will receive mercy because God is slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. 
The vision that we looked at a few weeks ago about the coming of the Son of Man, the coming of the Messiah, is the coming of Jesus. The mercy of God to meet this perfect standard of God on the cross and to pay the price for our sins, to satisfy the perfect justice of God, and for us to open the way of righteousness that we might not only be forgiven of our sins, but that we might also receive and be clothed by the righteousness of Christ, that God might see us as righteous. Not our righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ imparted to us. And this is the mercy of the Lord. If you will, turning away from our sin and believing in Christ Jesus, you will receive mercy and be given the righteousness of Christ. You will no longer be found deficient or wanting in the judgment of God, by grace given to you a new identity in Christ, no longer under condemnation, but at peace with God. Yes, praise the Lord. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. But that good news doesn't just come with Christ. I want you to see it some in the Old Testament, pointing forward to that salvation to come as we now look backward to the finished work of Christ. The Lord is extending the opportunity of repentance and mercy to Belshazzar, but he will not listen. Instead, he takes out his gold chain and puts it around um, Daniel's neck and makes him the third ruler of a kingdom that Daniel just said is getting ready to fall, and that's exactly what happens that night. The word of the Lord is true. May God be declared true and every man a liar, because God's word will stand and it will stand forever. And so let us learn from Belshazzar, learn from Nebuchadnezzar, and perhaps this morning as we talked about some of these family things, learn from your own family, looking back to some of the sins and mistakes that perhaps you ought to have learned from, but you have not. See those things. See the warning of the Lord. Turn away from these things. Humble yourself before the Lord. Seek his mercy and it will be found. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus. Thank you for this morning and thank you for this passage and for this important story. It's a story of, of many simple lessons, but Lord, they are so important. You bring to the face of a proud man and you stop him in his tracks and you send a messenger to tell him that he is a sinful person and that if he doesn't repent of his sins, if he doesn't humble himself before God, that he will be destroyed. And this person pays no attention and turns away from these things and goes to his death. And I pray, God, that this would not be so for us. I proclaim this morning the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that because of Jesus Christ and his work upon the cross and his great love and mercy and kindness towards us, that there is a way of forgiveness for all those that will turn away from their sins and believe in Christ Jesus. And I pray for every person here this morning, Lord, that may have a hard heart, that they would see the things of their own past and their own life and their own family, and that they would see your works in their life, and that they would hear your word this morning. And that they might call out and believe upon Christ Jesus, confessing their sins, receiving mercy, being clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and being given a place in the kingdom of God, not by works, but by mercy and grace alone through faith. Lord, we thank you for your kindness to us that we do not deserve, your love towards us, your favor and your goodness towards us. We rejoice in these things this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.